Welcome to the Thinkers and Doers podcast, where we hear from the leading thinkers and doers shaping the world around us. I am your host, Luke Graham, and today I am joined by none other than retired U.S. Navy SEAL come entrepreneur, Jonathan Wilson. Jonathan and I discuss his career in the military, corporate sector, not-for-profit, and then startup scene, including the leadership lessons he drew from each and the North Star that kept redirecting him continuously back to the service of others. Now, a quick friendly little heads up that this episode contains references to mental health challenges, not only experienced by veterans, but also the wider global community. Right, you haven't met many like this before. Today, I have the privilege of being joined by Jonathan Wilson, who has a CV that boasts some pretty impressive names. We have the US Navy SEALs, we have Goldman, we have universities as to the likes of Harvard and Oxford, uh, also the SEAL Future Foundation, and most recently, Envy Mind Health, a recent startup of Jonathan's and his team's over in the US. So today, I want to be able to talk to Jonathan about the leadership experiences he's had from one context to the other, what sort of adaptation that's required, and and of course, the journey um, that he's been on um, for that style of his to develop. So Jonathan, thanks again for joining me. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Good to see you. So one thing I wanted to kick off with you on is uh, is the earlier sort of stage of this this journey you've been on the uh the navy question and uh obviously the two of us both ex-navy two very very different experiences two different countries fortunately allies um but very two very different sections of of the navy myself engineering and yours special forces what kind of led you i guess first into the navy and then secondly um to double down on on that and uh and get yourself into the special forces yeah um, well, for me, I, I knew I was going to be in the military. My father was in the army. Um, so I thought I was going to do the army and, uh, didn't know quite what at that time. Back then there was a couple of Chuck Norris movies, uh, Delta Force. So that caught my attention. Not too many Navy SEAL books or movies back there. And I know that's different today. We got Chris Pratt playing movies of us and every other movie that comes out has a Navy SEAL in it. Um, but you know, I guess what was that? 20 some odd years ago, um, there was no books out there. There was a couple from Vietnam. And, and again, I had no idea what Navy SEALs were. So the story, and it's a funny one, or I think it is. Um, I was in high school. My dad was uh, stationed overseas at the time. We lived in Tennessee in the United States. And uh, he calls me up because uh, there was no email back then. and says, hey, son, you're coming to visit me in Saudi Arabia. Now, I had my first girlfriend at the time. And I had no desire to go see my father. I had no desire to go overseas. I just wanted to hang out with my girlfriend over that summer. I lost that battle. Um, got on a plane, flew all the way to Saudi Arabia, and uh, it changed my life. Um, I'm grateful for that. I, uh, for the first few days, I, I acted like a stubborn teenager, ignored my father, was showing how upset I was at him in the car ride in the base. Uh, he was introducing me to everybody, and I just played the game. But I, I wanted him to know I didn't want to be there. On the third day, we drove in, and the gate that we had passed two days before was closing. 
And as it was closing, I got a glimpse of a bunch of men that were in pretty darn good shape, no shirts, long beards. I turned to my dad. I was like, dad, who are those guys? He goes, those are the Navy SEALs. I was like, what the heck is a Navy SEAL? And the rest is really history. Um, he introduced me to that team. It was SEAL Team 5. Um, again, I was a teenager. I was a freshman in high school. Um, the, the, the SEAL team members took me under their wing. They let me hang out. They let me ask questions. And the rest, again, was history. So that's how it all happened. Um, I tell people it wasn't because, um, you know, these men were in short shorts or no shirts. It's, it, that's not the reason why <laughs> it really was the culture. It was really unique to see um, how professional these men were, how dedicated they were, cleaning their weapons, working out. Um, they were just um, some of the most, despite the beards uh, and the tattoos, they were just some of the most dedicated uh, individuals I've ever right. met. Right, and so and so, it was a journey straight out of high school then for you. Um, from there, for enlisting. Oh, so, enlisting, sorry. yeah. So this this journey is. Uh, I have a tendency to to make some big goals, and where I struggle is 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 seeing the path to get there. I'll get there. It's just not the path that I thought I was going to get there. So to answer your question, I got uh, recruited uh, to play football. I went to the Naval Academy Prep School. I went to the Naval Academy, and as mentioned, I was from University or from Tennessee, and all my friends went to University of Tennessee. So one break in between, I think plebeer and my sophomore year, I got uh, I was back home hanging out with my friends at UT, and they look at me and it's like, John, you can't come to the bars with us because you don't have a fake ID. Do you want a fake ID? It was like, was that a rhetorical question? Absolutely, I want a fake ID card. <laughs> Luke, I had that fake ID card for less than two weeks. When I went back to campus, I got caught with the fake ID card at the Naval Academy. And as we know, the military has a very strict policy. It's called the oh, Honor yeah. Code at the Naval Academy. At the Naval Academy, my career at the Naval Academy ended almost instantaneously after I was caught. Um, and then the pathway to the Navy was, um, to your point, it was um, I went into the Navy direct. Uh, finished my college and then went into the Navy um, uh, direct afterwards. Yeah, right, right. And then straight, diving straight into the SEALs from there or did you did you give seamanship school a, a bit of time or what? Yeah, I, uh, I was lucky enough to, um, to, to hit the minimum requirements and I barely hit the minimum requirements from a physical fitness standpoint. I look back now and the scores were... I don't know how I, I, I barely passed, but it was 42 push-ups. I think it was 42 sit-ups, six pull-ups, and like a one-and-a-half-mile run. And what we've done since then, and I'm, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know this. Uh, those scores were were just abysmal, and I barely passed. So since I barely passed, I was given the opportunity to go into SEAL training direct, and that's what I did do. And I quickly realized those scores are the bare minimum. And in short order, uh, the SEAL program got me to a spot where I was doing a lot more than 42 push-ups and 42 yeah, sit-ups. <laughs> <laughs> a nice little rude awakening for you yeah. uh, at the dive school or the SEALs. That's school. right. That's right. Yeah, right. Right. Okay. So you could almost say being thrown really heavily into the deep end coming from uni um, or um, college in the US, yep. um, go in SEAL training. Um, around about that time, things are getting pretty serious. Um, US leading um, operations um, in the Middle East, uh, international coalition, um, the likes of the UK, Australia, many other countries being involved there. Um, you know, you're deploying um, to these sorts of places, you're deploying all over the world from, from my recollection. 
um, yeah. not just that, but um, being a seal on its own is is as many people know, one of the greatest feats um, in the military broadly. But um, more specifically, you were um, an officer in the Navy SEALs, which is um, has the added requirement of, um, of being the person um, who is in charge. So not only are you being thrown so heavily in the deep end with all of this physical fitness stuff, but there is a war um, taking place and you're in a leadership role with this. So... There had to have been some pretty early stage um, shifts in mentality when it came to the way that you were um, learning to manage people. Maybe some were older than you, some perhaps oftentimes um, are more experienced. That will often happen with a junior officer where um, some of their more senior uh, non-commissioned officers um, have been around the sticks for quite a lot longer. What, what, what was that experience like for yourself? Yeah, so, so one correction there. So I ended up coming direct in, so I was enlisted um, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then that experience in the SEAL teams is unique in the sense that, um, majority of the SEAL team members have college degrees. So a lot of, there's only a few billets to get in. And after my, my abysmal start with the Naval Academy, it was, there was a long shot. In fact, it was probably next to nothing for me to go in direct uh, as an officer. So, um, I think there's only 10 billets a year, maybe a little bit more where officers come in and majority of the community is, is enlisted. Uh, with that being said, I would say on the team, there's, uh, there's one team leader or platoon leader as an officer. And then the rest are run by the, the enlisted uh, men. So the chief, you have the leading petty officer, but really it comes down to team leaders. And honestly, through my experience in the Navy, it ended up being 16 total years. Um, some of the best leadership experiences uh, that I had, um, being a team leader and being in charge of a small team. Now, it grew from there, as you know, and I ended up uh, leading, you know, huge um, deployment teams uh, in the tune of 60 plus. But the, the most... Um, I guess lessons learned that I had were those early stages running a small four to six person team in those areas that you mentioned, Iraq, Afghanistan, in that ambiguous environment, in that chaotic environment, trying to coordinate with other team leaders and make sure we're reporting up to, uh, to the command. So just wanted to call that out. Mm. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll touch on a few things Uh, when we showed up and, um, course correct me luke whenever you want just interrupt um yeah no worries when we showed up we there was a bit of uh, a bit of a cockiness because you know we were special forces we were the seals and and uh, we walked into iraq at that time to your point um really overly confident and um prior to you and i hopping on i made the comment that we got you know everybody has a plan until you get kicked in the in the teeth or punched in the teeth the old mike tyson quote we got punched in the teeth. Like we lost a lot of teeth. We were arrogant. Uh, there was ignorance. Um, we had some good tactics, but they were for the wrong era. They were Vietnam tactics. And what we quickly realized is this is a level playing field. Yes, we have technology, but this is their backyard. Um, yes, we have tactics, but they're 30, 40 years old in some cases, and they're not relevant here. And, uh, we had to take a step back and really assess what was going on. Um, we lost a lot of men, unfortunately, uh, because of our tactics, but we were mature enough to quickly understand that we have to adapt to this ever-changing battlefield 
And uh, that's what we ended up doing as leaders. We'd uh, do something that you're familiar with called after action reviews. After every single mission, we get back and didn't matter what happened on that mission, didn't matter if people got hurt, um, didn't matter how long it was, Luke, uh, like the first thing we would do, we wouldn't even take our gear off. We'd walk into the ready room and we would debrief what happened. What did we say we were going to do? What actually happened? Is that a better way of doing business or is it not? If it is, let's train and see if it really is. Let's test it. And maybe we incorporate it into our new tactics. Um, and that's what we did. And that's how we constantly evolved. That's how we constantly optimized this machine that we were. So let me stop there and see if that, um, you know, if there's any points yeah, or comments yeah, you have to that. That's great. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of iterative learning then, an iterative learning process. And I mean, I guess aside from the nature of the work that we did um, and the timings, um, and another key difference is, is the length of time as well. So 16 years for you, six for me, bit of a contrast. Um, <laughs> but, um, but obviously a lot changed over that period of time. So you said, you know, early stage, a lot of hard lessons coming in, cocky from training from a previous major war being um, Vietnam. Um, and, uh, and, and how that iterated over time, what did it look like if you were to say sort of like the, the beginning versus the end result from the, your early versus late career, how, how did, how did, you know, your, your environment change, um, within the organization how did you kind of change? Yeah, well, I think technology, a lot of the technology we use today were developed because of the war, right? Everything that we're using, um, War forces us to evolve and adapt, and um, and I think a lot of the technology, which is obvious, is there was a lot of changes. Uh, I think about the vehicles that we initially drove in were Humvees, unarmored Humvees, and the enemy adapts to that. And you know, unfortunately, they were using IEDs, um, basic IEDs initially. So then we would we would armor the bottom, and then they would put IEDs in the quay walls and direct those projectiles. So then we would armor the sides and then they were at a point where they got so sophisticated that they could just overcome any armor on a Humvee. So that's where this new, uh, all these new vehicles started coming into place. I remember one of the, we had a multi-million dollar vehicle um, called a Riva and it was armored almost on every part except the top. Well, if you spend time in uh, any, any country, but in Iraq specifically, there's bridges everywhere. And all it took was the enemy to just have a parachute grenade and start dropping, you know, ordnance from above. And it's just like, we have a multi-million dollar vehicle that was just defeated in a matter of like probably 20 minutes of a group sitting around saying, how do we defeat this? Oh, they're not armored on the top. Let's drop bombs from the, from the bridge. So those are some of the technologies uh, that evolved as leaders. I think the process and just having repetition. So, you know, a lot of us again came in thinking we've gone through the same training um, I didn't truly understand in the SEALs or even afterwards how important it was to have those repetitions under your belt, like Goldman Sachs and others. It's just the experience is so invaluable. Um, and that's what allowed us to to develop what we call intuition or gut feeling. It's like, no, that's that's thousands of reps under your belt telling you, wait a second, something's off right now. Let's take a knee on this battlefield. And what's, why is my the hair on the back of my neck standing up? Those are reps. That's thousands of iterations. So um, the process got really refined. Um, we got really good through those after actions of identifying what was working and what wasn't, creating systems, um, creating checklists. You know, and then in the in the noise and in the chaos that war is, we need to keep it simple. And checklists were a way for us to make sure 
we did everything that we intended to on that mission when the bombs were going off, when people were getting shot at. So we were really back to the basics um, in that idea. And all those checklists, processes, systems are, are, you know, is what changed and evolved uh, to answer your question and um, allowed us to be a better fighting force. So a lot of extreme experiences, obviously, over that period of time. Um, You do your service. I know there was an intermission um, at some point uh, in the middle. Um, A lot of my close friends have done that. I've been very tempted. Um, It's... uh, it's a challenge once you get out to stay out. Um, some people yeah. say institutionalization. Um, there's a word in Australia that's called chari, which is just that you love it so much that you need to uh, need to be back. And some of my friends loved it too much that they they uh, they couldn't have enough, and and they're um, they're still there to this day. Um, but you have this intermission. You you serve the your, the final how many years? Um, yeah. So the second stint was um, was just about five years. Five, yep. So 11 yeah. first time, five second yep. time. How long was the intermission? Uh, it's just under two years. And that was two the Goldman years. era. Yes, right. So tell me about that Goldman era then. What were yeah. you able to bring with you to Goldman? What did you have to shed from yourself um, in order to adapt to this environment? One of the key questions um, veterans of any um, color um, and cut um, are asked often is um, is how did you reconcile shifting to this environment where you're not working continuously to this major sort of mission or operation um, in in a very real sense? So, so what what was it like um, over those two years? Yeah. So, so for the veterans on this that are going to listen to this, I'm not sure how many will. I think for me, I'll speak to myself. Um, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. So it wasn't war, it wasn't SEAL training, it wasn't staying up a week in hell week, it wasn't, you know, unfortunately losing friends, going to memorials, Arlington, it wasn't any of that, Luke. It was losing my sense of identity um, and trying to fill a void that I realize now can never be filled, right? Once you come to that realization is like, there's nothing like what we did. Um, We can take uh, experiences and tactics and, you know, um, and other tools and techniques from the service and apply it to that. But what I, what I realize now looking back is I, I made the mistake of trying to find another purpose. And um, Goldman is not that. Trading is not that. It, Goldman's been great, was great to my family. Uh, it was an unbelievable experience. Um, trading is not my purpose. Making as much money as possible, as crazy as that sound, and maybe not to you, Luke, I haven't served. I, it can never be my purpose. Like I have to find something that I truly believe in and um, um, we'll probably touch on it. The nonprofit was able to help me help others and identify what their next chapter looks like. So um, that transition was hard. Um, it was the first time in my life where uh, I went from, you know, peak performer, um, just accelerated in everything I did to, to questioning um, my worth, question if, uh, if I was cut out to, to do this you know, next uh, iteration of the civilian world, if I fit in. And uh, again, observing how I got there, is you left a mission that you had that everybody would bought into and would believe in and, and would die for. You had teammates that would do anything for you. And now here you are on a trading floor at Goldman Sachs, um, 
again, it's just, it's a, it's hard not to dismiss what the, those men and women do there. It's, it's a necessary job. And again, they were great to me, but for me, it's just not how I'm wired. I need to serve. I need purpose. I need to be passionate about what I do. And I need teammates that align behind that. So, um, not quite answering the question, but just wanted to kind of paint the picture. With that said, there's a lot of things that I was able to take from our time in service. Uh, again, keep it simple. Like Wall Street, the markets, it's chaotic. Um, it's unpredictable, right? So how do you uh, create an understanding or a system around that? It's just, you go back to the basics. Let's put, let's put a process in place. Um, so when the noise does happen or the fog of war does come over you, and you're nervous and you're, you have a big trade, like what, what did you say you were going to do? What does your checklist tell you to do when that chaos hits? So those checklists, those procedures, those processes were a lot of uh, what we were able to take from my time in service. Um, you know, I was a little bit older than most of the, the traders. I was an associate. So I was uh, lucky enough to have my degree and to come in as an associate, but a lot of the, um, the traders there, they, they were younger and some of the older ones, we'd have multiple dinners, taking clients out, just being disciplined is the other thing too, is not needing to go out and, and burn it down every night in New York city. Uh, and, and keeping balance as much as you possibly can in your life, like being disciplined to like the things that you care about. If you're a runner, keep running just because you have two dinners at night. Maybe you have one glass or no glasses of wine because you're training for a marathon or an ultra marathon or whatever it is. Uh, so disciplined, I, I remember my boss coming to me one day and says, John, I never have to worry about you not showing up to work. And I looked at him, I'm like, we're at Goldman Sachs, one of the best investment banks, if not the best investment bank in the world. Are you worried about some of the other associates and traders not coming into don't work? Yeah. <laughs> um, so th that that was interesting to me, but discipline, systems, and then for me having to find purpose and, you know, and again, it wasn't in the, it, it wasn't at Goldman for me, it was uh, recognizing a huge gap in the veteran transition um, mm -hmm. and creating a nonprofit to try to address that gap. That's where I found my purpose. Yeah. So, so perfect segue. You set yourself up perfectly here. Um, I don't even need to ask. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, stint number two, the final five years, um, yeah. you, um, you, you complete that service um, you, obviously you discharge and, uh, and that leads us then to, um, the seal future foundation, which is, which is how, um, or when I should say you and I crossed paths, um, when you were, um, completing further studies, um, I believe, um, uh, while, while in some kind of leadership role with the seal future foundation. So you, you've, you've hinted at some parts already transitions, um, you know, are notoriously um, hopeless in, in many corners of the globe when it comes to um, uh, ex-military. Uh, I believe over in the US, there's a big homelessness problem with American veterans um, and uh, not, not quite homelessness has been raised in Australia, but certainly a big one around mental health. So give us a bit of an understanding um, of how Seal Future Foundation came about, what the motivation was behind it, what sort of work you guys were doing there. Yeah. Um, well, you know, we started the organization as the Seal Future Fund based in New York City. Um, and obviously, we, we rebranded re it the Seal Future Foundation. The reason why we rebranded it 
was because I was getting calls. It's like, hey, uh, how much can we put on the books with you guys? Are you, wait, are you not a hedge fund? I'm like, no, you can put a lot on the books with us, <laughs> but it's going to be a donation. And uh, I can't tell you how many calls I fielded. So we ended up uh, switching it to the Seal Future Foundation. Um, as I alluded to earlier, my struggle, I thought was unique to me, but as you've just identified, it's not. It's You go from what some describe as an institution, uh, an organization that um, is, is really driven by missions. Um, you're surrounded by others that believe in the mission and then you, and then you get out and, you know, you got to figure out how to trade on your own or you become an engineer. I, there's, there's a lot missing from that and it's a struggle. Um, what we initially identified was a gap in um, obviously job placement, like like-minded organizations and scholarships. So um, the, the, the government's good for veterans in the sense that they've set up some of this, um, you can do some of these scholarship programs. If you serve, they'll give you the GI Bill is what we call it here. And then they have a top mm-hmm. off program for Yellow Ribbon. But a lot of these individuals are go-getters uh, in the SEAL teams and they want to shoot for the stars. Um, you mentioned some of the schools that I went to. So a bit of an overachiever. I think that's common in our community. Um, and if you do go to one of those schools, those yellow ribbon and GI Bill just don't cover the cost. So I remember doing our first dinner, man, and it was in Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, we had a gentleman hosted at his house, and I thought, holy crap, we're, we're going to crush it. We're, 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 get, we're, like, we're on the map now. Greenwich, Connecticut, right outside of New York City, one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest county in the United States, Fairfield County. We raised $5,000 at that dinner. It cost more to put on the damn dinner than it. Oh, man. <laughs> Last year, we did an event at Nobu, so Sushi Joint in Malibu, and there was probably 12 people there, and the organization raised a million dollars at that dinner. Um, wow. So we've come a long wow. way. Um, going back to where we started, scholarships, job placement, um, we started creating communities around the country because we realized we, you know, we're not trying to be a VFW, if you're familiar with that, the Veterans of Foreign uh, Affairs. Um, they have basically bars around the country that old service members from the Vietnam and other eras go and you drink. And our, our view on that was they got part of it right. I think alcohol um, in some facets. Yeah, Australia, is, we call that the RSL. Yeah. Yeah. So the community aspect, we thought they got right. Um, but our mission was a little bit different in the sense that we wanted these men and their families to find their next purpose so that they can continue to serve. So we started creating what we call FOBs, forward operating bases around the United States. So if there's a SEAL and his family moving to Charlotte, North Carolina, great. We're going to create a community and not just veterans. We need them to integrate into that community. So businessmen and women as well. Um, and then eventually we realized, um, and it was a kick in the teeth for us. Um, we realized we're missing the most important component of this. And you said it earlier, and that's the wellness or mental health component of this. So for us in 2017, we'd been humming along now for six years, you know, placing people in great institutions, a lot at Harvard business school, Stanford, all over the country, all the brand names overseas as well in great organizations. So the McKinsey's and Blackstone and, um, you know, there's a seal that wanted to be a lead climber in Colorado. So we re we did redid our bylaws and gave him a scholarship so that he can get a certificate certifications. Now he's lead climbing, uh, organizations in the Rockies, which is amazing. So we were getting it right. And then in 2017, we had a call set up with a really senior, 
uh, SEAL Team 6 member um, Monday, I believe. And the night before, he FaceTimed his wife and shot himself. Nice. And that, for us, I mean, that was tough. So I, yeah. I don't know if I share this with you, man, but that was the first of many. So 16 years of combat, Iraq, multiple times, Afghanistan. I've lost a lot of brothers. We've lost more SEALs now to suicide than we have to war. Mm. And he was the first. Man. So for us, um, that's when we took a step back, realized we need these men healthy. We need these men whole. We have some severe injuries, not all of us, but some of us with traumatic brain injury, some with PTSD, some with physical injuries, uh, moral injuries. What are the tools out there? And, um, you know, what are some of the novel treatments that we can explore as well? Because we want to do it to, to really provide best in class. So the organization of the SEAL Future Foundation through wearables on everybody um, to monitor their biometrics. We had 2,000 Navy SEALs on a dashboard, and we can quickly identify who is struggling from a biometric standpoint and intervene. Are you trending up or are you trending down through, you know, Poor sleep, uh, through heart rate variability, through heart you know heart rate escalation, we can quickly tell when somebody was awry. The other thing we could do is we can measure the impact that solutions or treatment, be it you know SSRIs or traditional uh, therapies we're having on you, talk therapies. We, we measured everything, and we were able to see Luke what was working for that individual and what wasn't. And that honestly, we've been doing it now for. That was 2017, so we've been at it for a while. We have a medical advisory board. We've explored everything along the lines of um, as far as uh, psychedelics as well. We've done research with universities and the impact it has with people with PTSD, uh, all the while, again, collecting all the biometrics. Um, so that's that's what the organization does. Um, and to your point, I, I ran it for... 10 years, I gave it everything I had. And I thought in my head, like in the military, it was time to turn over to leadership and get fresh leaders, uh, fresh perspectives. So last year, I stepped down as the CEO, uh, stayed on the board for a while. I am, uh, uh, no, I guess they call me the Emiratus board member. So just to give a shout out to the founder. <laughs> I love yeah. That. Yeah. <laughs> So, so I, I got to say then, and uh, and this is something that really impressed me um, with you when we met, um, is, uh, you know, um, and I would put myself in the category of um, uh, the point that the military, generally speaking, can can attract some hard nosed characters, some stubborn characters, right, um, and some ambitious characters. Um, so it's uh, it's it's uh, I wouldn't say surprising, given given that we know each other, but um, I would say. Um, uh, quite impressive that that you managed to to hand the baton on after ten years, rather than um, squeezing, squeezing. You know, identifying that you know perhaps there was a, a new era um, for the for the Seal Future Foundation, and and of course that then leads you into Invi Mind Health, your current project, um, which has been I know you've been working on for a number of years now, and and is I guess in quite a few ways related to what you're doing at the Seal Future Foundation. So. Um, you started tinkering with this project, I believe, um, while you were studying your exec MBA at Oxford. Um, did you have the inspiration beforehand? Um, did it come to you while you were there? What was what was the process of coming up with the idea, identifying the sorts of t- the sorts of talent that you needed, 
um, and and making that next pivot now into the kind of startup world. So you've done military, multinational, not for profit, and now startup. Now it's a, it's a great question. Um, it's such, such a fascinating uh, process that we've gone through. So I started this. It, it was it was the Seal Future Foundation that was the catalyst for this. It was. It was me personally, and I don't think I've shared this with you. Is uh, a little more color to the Goldman era. Is, um, you know, I I had I did it. Like everybody said, Johnny, you did it. Like congratulations, you're you're successful. Then why the hell do I feel this way? Then why, for the first time in my life, am I depressed despite having a family that that adores me and loves me and living in Fairfield County, Connecticut, with a massive home and the ability to to take vacations like. Why do I feel this way? Um, and I, I shared uh, that we did some research with psychedelics. So I'm, I'm going to get completely authentic here with you. Um, yeah, I get the pups in the background. That's life. Um, I don't know if you heard that. <laughs> for sure. Mine's hiding somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, it was, you know, for the first time being depressed, for the first time being anxious, like, Looking back now, realizing I was super hypervigilant, taking the train into the city, like back in a corner, like always constantly scanning and looking for the next threat. I didn't know what was going on. It was just my normal behavior after a decade plus of service, after a decade of plus of this keeping me alive. I was doing it in New York City. Right, like I was doing it on a right. subway, sitting with your back to yeah. the wall in the um, in the restaurants 100%. and things like always, that. Right, that's one hey, of the. We yeah. can, always find the veterans with yep. their back to the we wall. We can see through here. It's like actually, I want that seat all the way over there in that corner, so I can see everything. Um, yeah, and it got to a point where um, I left. I, I left my family. Got a um, got an apartment not too far away. Like moved in by myself and. Um, still depressed, angry, tried to seek help through the VA system. And um, unfortunately, it's a monster system, the veteran affairs system. And it's really hard mm-hmm. to get the appropriate support. And uh, the story there is I, I tried to find parking for an hour, dude. I, there was so packed, I couldn't find. Yeah. And when I showed up, I was only 15 minutes late. I gave myself ample time to, to be early because our mantra, if you're early, you're on time. Well, I was only yeah, a few minutes a few late minutes after looking for parking for an hour. And when I got in, I got scolded by the administrative lady. And, now, and, and oh, by the way, I'm not in a good mental state right now because I don't know what's going on. And you're scolding me. It's like this is so I, I left there immediately and never went back. Um, for me, um, what saved my life, dude, was being able to see the data, to be able to see my biometrics yeah. and say, wait a second, I got the equation in front of me, let's change parts of that equation. And that's what I did. I started tinkering. Like, you know, I was prescribed medicine. Is this doing good or is it doing bad for me? It's actually doing bad for my physiology. This isn't working. Talk therapy. That's definitely not fucking working for me, man. This guy, it just wasn't. What what ended up doing it for me was um, psychedelics, man. I ended up um, doing psychedelics. My biometrics went through the roof. My heart rate variability uh, tripled my sleep. I was, that was probably the right. biggest issue that I had. It was just horrible sleep. Went from 10 minutes of deep and REM sleep, but I could see it now. It went to two hours a piece. Uh, and I quickly realized we're onto something. So that again was, you know, a little more, uh, authentic on how we got to this, to this, uh, to the indie idea, but also not just seeing my scores, seeing the impact that all the other guys were having, uh, when we were supporting them in their treatments, 
uh, understanding where they were at, understanding the different solutions that they were trying out and how that impacted them. So Envy was birthed out of that. For me, I say, you know, it's not just a, a veteran first responders uh, tool. I honestly think the world is challenged with their mental health resources and tools. And I think this could fill a huge gap if we get it right. Um, I call it an obligation. So I did go back to school. We worked on it for, for two plus years um, in the program. And, um, you know, James Smith, is uh, who is in the program with us, is a partner to me now. We also have some folks that were at the nonprofit that are supporting me. And um, what we ended up doing was creating a, it's a data and analytics company, but the user interfaces through an app. So we have an app in an MVP stage after a few years. Um, we just launched our MVP last month. We're beta testing that right now. And what we do is we meet you where you're at. It's almost like an or, um, a Strava for runners. So we're the hub for whatever mm -hmm. device you use. You have an Aura Ring, great. A Garmin, great. A Whoop, an Apple Watch, we we have APIs to 70% of the different wearables. We pull the biometric information from that. We give you what we call a mind score, which is just a roll up of helps you understand where you're trending. Are you trending up or trending down? And then we, in time with enough data, we'll be able to provide you with personalized solutions. So there's a billion solutions out there. Um, we want to test those solutions with you and then understand what works best for Luke when he's in the shitter. Uh, is it is it this or is it that? We're going to know right away. Don't waste your time with this, Luke. It's not a pill. It's not talk therapy. It's actually what you need to do is meditation. And we're going to measure it all. So mm. that's what we're doing right now. We're working with a bunch of Navy SEALs, firefighters, um, police departments. Uh, my dream is to get this in the hands of our our, our children, like adolescents, with the, the amount of pressure they have in the school systems, the cyberbullying that takes place, just having a good understanding with them mm -hmm. along with their peers of how they're doing, uh, I think can prevent uh, massive amounts of suicides, not just in that demographic, but but others as well. Yeah, yeah, and, and not only the suicide point, but to, to reinforce what you're saying before, it's it's making sure people are, are getting the right types of um, therapy or treatment um, at the right times, you know. Um, it's, you know, I was only saying this to someone the other day, I forget where I heard this, but um, it fascinates me that even on a nutritional level, say, which I know isn't, isn't like the absolute center of, of what you guys are working on, but even on the nutrition level, we know more about our solar system than we do about our own gut, you know, and the, and the way our own brain functions going to a, a, probably a more relevant part of what you guys are doing at Envy Mind Health. Um, it, yeah, it blows my mind that we, there, there's still so much more, um, yet to be, you know, clarified, identified, discovered all those sorts of things. Yeah. So yeah, fascinating. It blows my mind too. I mean, you think about, you walk into your car and you know, instantaneously when something's arrived, the diagnostic system tells you, you got you know, oil, windshield wiper fluid. And we have all this technology at our hands, and yet we have really no true understanding of what's going on internally and the impact that, that everyday interfaces. We should do. probably stay on brand, Jonathan, yeah. and say warship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Check the main propulsion systems, the auxiliary systems. I have, I'm, ter I'm terrified <laughs> of ships, dude. So, another hilarious story. I've been on a ship twice. I get motion sickness. So, we're one time we're in Iraq, for God's sake. So, so why would I have Draymond? And for those that don't know what Dramamine is, it's a motion sickness medicine. But we're in Iraq and we get this mission. We walk into the mission room. And they're like, hey, we're going to intercept somebody on a ship. So we're going to take helos out to the Gulf and we're going to land the helos. And I'm starting to sweat because I know I'm like, oh, no. I'm, oh, shit. 
I was like, I hope this mission. They're yeah, gonna find me out. I hope this mission doesn't happen. <laughs> the second those helicopters landed uh, on that on that ship, I ran right to the Quayle, started throwing up the whole time I was there. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I appreciate you trying to keep me on brand. I'm terrified of ships, man. So I'm gonna use the car. <laughs> Right, fair, fair. Well, I, t- I tell you what, I tell you what, Jonathan, I tell you what, um, I was sick every day. My very first day at sea was off the coast of New oh, York, yeah. believe it or not, um, uh, on one of our ships. I'm doing some operations with you guys, some um, uh, training exercises. And, um, and I learned at that point that I was seasick um, as, a, as a young um, seaman, so trainee, sailor, um, or, um, you know, junior level of a private for those more familiar with the army rank system. And uh, and I learned that day that I was seasick, and I was seasick every day for the uh, for the years oh, that I was at sea, including in the Gulf, which is actually um, you know quite yeah. quite calm waters compared to the yeah. Indian Ocean or the Atlantic oh, or the Pacific. That's or the worst feeling ever. I mean, everybody that's been <laughs> seasick knows what we're talking about. Like that, I would rather a lot of other things happen to me to include broken bones than me getting seasick. God. Yeah. <laughs> So, so, okay. So Envy Mind Health, early stage startup. Um, and then, uh, boom, this economic shakedown comes, right? Um, so you've had this career where you've, um, you've dealt with contingencies for a, for a big part of your adult life, essentially the whole of your adult life. Then you enter the startup world at this point where all of a sudden people are talking about um, the nature of funding completely changing for early stage and later stage startups and private equity and whatever. Um, How did that then play out for you as far as mental agility, leadership styles, being able to to pivot and and, and those sorts of things under pressure? So I'm going to maybe go back in time and share a little story that's relevant here. So a lot of folks ask like, how do you get through SEAL training? Like, how did you get through it? Like, how did all you and your teammates and there was of us out of the 216 that made it. And it took us forever to kind of identify how we got there. Um, but we all came to the conclusion that it was, it was just about our willingness to push through anything and give ourselves one option. So I remember looking at the ship and thinking, you, you know, I, I get motion sickness. I'm like, shit, if I go out on that ship when we're in SEAL training in San Diego, I'm done. Like my life would be miserable for the next four or five years, whatever my commitment was. I only have one option. I have to succeed. There's no other options. You give yourself another option, you're going to start going down that path when it gets tough. Um, and I share that with you because, oh boy, has it been tough, right? Like uh, this, this startup this uh, bear market's leading into a recession. If we're currently one, we're, we're definitely heading into one. Uh, you know, the markets are telling us it's probably going to be a longer tenured one, maybe an 18-month recession. Funding's tightened up. We launched our seed round two days before SVB co- collapsed. It hasn't been ideal, but there's only one option. Like, I think about our mission and, you know, my, my friends, my brothers that have unfortunately gotten to a spot where they had no other op- option but to take their lives our mission is to save people's lives by making the invisible visible man there is no other option so we will prevail do i know what that looks like absolutely fucking not i have no idea (laughs) but we will prevail because there's only one option and we are getting creative uh we're thinking outside the box um we have users on platforms we have contracts so uh, again maybe we're slowing down the fundraise but 
putting more of our own capital into this, which isn't ideal. But again, at the end of the day, this has to succeed. That's the only option. So I share that story just maybe if that resonates with anybody. You give yourself an out, you're going to take that out at some point. It's just so easy when the, when when it gets uh, when it gets too hard. And that's probably been the biggest lesson for me is I know it's just human nature. There's If there's an easier path, we're going to take it at some point. Don't give yourself that easier path uh, would be my recommendation if anybody cares or, listen, or is listening on that. Um, a lot of the other battlefield techniques, oh, yeah. like, you know, the, the big one was uh, Colin Powell's 47 year rule. If you're familiar with that, it's like, uh, if you're not, it's, yeah, it's a I great, so. I used it for everything yeah. uh, when we were leading um, on the battlefield. So the 47 year rule is if, if you w- wait to have 70% or more information, you waited too long. The opportunity passed or in battlefield, people got hurt. Yeah. Yes. 40% or yeah. less, not enough information. That's where all the mistakes happen. The sweet spot's that 40. So it's it's not all the information. It's enough information for you as a leader to make a decision. Uh, that's been really relevant in this time because tomorrow, I guarantee, is going to throw us a curveball that none of us predicted. And if we make this big decision, wait until we're fully baked and here we are, we got all the information, let's make a decision and tomorrow happens and something new, that all that time and energy is out the window. So uh, for us, making decisions with limited information, but enough information to know what's relevant, it's moving directionally in the right direction is, uh, is another important trait that we pull off the battlefield. And again, that saved our lives. If you wait too long for all the information, people are going to get hurt in war. So let's make a decision. Everything is going to change after you make that decision. Your teammates are going to give you feedback. The market's going to give you feedback. The world's going to give you feedback. Make another decision. Um, same thing with uh, the startup life, in my opinion. Right. Wow. What a, uh, I reckon that's uh, got to be one of the best ways to conclude. So, um, cool. Jonathan, thanks Thanks for opening up there and, and sharing some you know pretty awesome and, and unique perspectives on on um, how to how to wrestle with uncertainty, um, how to deal with paradox, and uh, yeah, again, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Good to see you again.